this episode is going to be discussing some serious issues including sexual assault, child abuse, and domestic abuse. If these are problems for you, you're not alone. You need to not listen to this for your safety. Please know that we don't mind. We understand. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We're your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Episode 11, Stories versus Parables. Fight! Where we will be looking at chapters 23 through 25 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of stories and parables. If you're new here, first off, we'd recommend you start with Episode 1. But if you insist, here is a light explanation of what we will be doing in this podcast. Every week, we will examine a section of the books the name of the wind, and eventually the wise man's fear, through a chosen lens and figure out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. We'll then take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text and choose an Aristotelian for Nemos of the week. We'll also expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And we wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. So, as you can imagine, because this is a reread podcast, we assume that you're familiar with Name of the Wind, Wise Man's Fear, The Lightning Tree, and The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Just assume there's going to be spoilers. And, as always, be kind to one another and be kind to creators. It's a tough world out there. Let's not make it any harder. Is it my turn for the recap? Yes. I didn't remember that! (laughs) Oh, Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I don't have (laughs) recap. (sighs) I'm almost willing to do an audible and... I won't tell you no. I'm getting the stopwatch ready. (laughs) No! I forgot. God. Well, let's see if I can do something off the cuff. You might be eating some raspberries. All right, you ready? Yeah. Okay. In three, two, one, go. Quoth has a fever, goes to Trappist's basement. Trappist tells a story, rather a parable, about Telu, and then Quoth assumes that Trappist is a Talon priest, and we see Quoth look over his shelter once he's better at the street and sees a little kid being beaten up by other street kids, and he doesn't do anything because he's afraid that he'll be caught. And then we get an interlude with Chronicler Bast and Quoth talking about why he didn't leave Tarbian. The end. I don't think that's it, actually. It is, though. No? What? I may have also screwed up my reading. What do you mean? Like, I don't think there's an interlude in here. There is an interlude. Uh. I asked you if you read the two little short chapters. Yeah, I read this one and Scarpy. 
Wait, did you read the Lannery one? Yeah. <laughs> did you read the one before this? <laughs> I read the one before and the one after. How did you miss? Um. <laughs> this was not the chapter. <laughs> oh, we had forked this one up. <laughs> well. And it's a good thing you decided not to challenge yourself. <laughs> Why? Because you came in at 36 seconds. I got well under my limit. How did you miss the two little short chapters? <laughs> Didn't you read it all just well, like from one end to the other? <laughs> well, that's three chapters. So there's yes, Burning yeah. Wheel. Yes. Then you have The Shadows Themselves and then interlude okay yeah i missed that one so it's very short you can go ahead and read it right now okay <laughs> enthralling audio as will reads the two chapters which thank goodness are only like three pages that he forgot i'm a dork <laughs> that's okay so am i i forgot about the recap and i totally glossed over all of the parable because we're going to get into it so, our story picks up with Quoth stumbling into Trappist's basement with a fever after spending a very confusing temperature-irregulated evening on the roof. I don't know when the last time that you've had the flu was, but it's kind of shocking that he would remember any of it. It's definitely not a pleasant experience, and it knocks you out hard. Keep in mind also, both in addition to dealing with flu symptoms, probably had a little bit of hypothermia, not to mention frostbite. And he had been beaten to shirt by that cop. He had walked through the snow. He had been face down in a snowbank. He was cold and starving. And then he comes down with the flu. When your body deals with that kind of trauma, because that's what it was, your immune system shuts down a bit too. So that means you're more susceptible to things like flu, infections. And this is something that we've had experience with last March when we moved. It was probably one of our largest moves that either one of us has ever had. And it was stressful and a little bit frightening because we were moving away from family into the unknown and your body just rebelled it wasn't the flu but you had a fever and you were sick and then i got stress sick and i couldn't take care of you and you couldn't take care of me and it was complete misery we lucked out when my mother took pity on us and came down to help us get back on our feet. And, and then she got sick from what we had and realized how absolutely disgustingly awful that particular sick was. It knocked us both out and it was, it was not a good time. But having someone there to help was so beneficial. And in this case... That's what happens for Quoth. Somehow he managed to get to Trappist's basement. There's no telling how, because he was delusional 
and broken. He had the wherewithal to have his money with him, but... He spends the next couple days being treated by Trappist. After Quoth has recovered enough to the point where he's lucid again, some of the other kids beg Trappist for a story. And I noticed a few interesting things about this, where Trappist says, I don't know any stories. I guess I'll have to remember one. And that almost makes me feel like Trappist has something in his past that he doesn't want to confront. I don't have a story. I don't have a past. Well, his life is taking care of these children. His day-to-day isn't that different. It's probably different children, eventually. Waves of different children, you know, people cycle in and out. But I'm assuming that his day-to-day is mostly the same. But he still had a way that he became Trappist. And the story, or the parable, really, that he tells, I think gives us some clues to who Trappist is and where his philosophy comes from. One of the things that I notice is he he starts telling his story, and he starts by bungling up when this all started. It was 400 years ago. It was 1,000 years ago. That 400 years ago represents actually relatively recent times in the life of an organized religion. Or in the life of a society, really. I realize that technology has expanded and grown and changed and things are, like, day-to-day is somewhat unrecognizable now than it was 400 years ago. But people had to buy food, people had to farm food, people had to live their day-to-day lives. There were books, there was a press, there was printing, there was newspapers in some form or another. You know, 400 years ago, in the grand scheme of things, human existence isn't so terribly different. We all need to eat and drink and live. People fall in love and people have families and people have children. People have livelihoods. Maybe technology has changed. Maybe information is more easily accessible and we have learned. But There are still records from 400 years ago that are understandable and easily decipherable and don't seem that foreign. Our language is different than it was 400 years ago, but with a little bit of work, you can pretty easily read a book from 400 years ago. We have records, easily read records, from more than 400 years ago. If something had happened like this 400 years ago, it wouldn't yet have turned into the mishmash that becomes mythology. So it's doubtful that the 400 years is correct. But do you remember with Lanray how long ago that happened? Thousands and thousands of years ago. It has the feel of the opening preamble for the old Conan the Barbarian. Gotcha. Long ago, before the oceans drank Atlantis and the dawning of the sons of Arius, etc. But that's not important right now. (laughs) I'm just curious because there's a few parallels. Well, and this is kind of a creation story of sorts. It's an origin story for the Talon faith. And even within it, we can already tell some things about Trappist's relationship with the Talon religion. 
like he spends a little bit of time talking about how there were people who abused their power within the church to hurt people. Then he realizes, oh wait, no, this was before the church existed. Which makes me wonder if when he was part of the church, if he witnessed a lot of corruption. Yeah, I think there's definitely the sense of that because you compare Trappist, who wears these old ill-colored robes that probably were gray like the Talon priests at one point. You compare him to the ones that we see in the church who are always in clean robes and always have shoes and always seem to have money. We will see more of the church a little bit later. Some of the people within the church act almost like lawmakers. There's a bit of the sort of Deuteronomist to them, carving out law and handing down justice. A parallel that I wanted to bring up was Trappist reminds me a lot of St. Francis of Assisi, who was a medieval Catholic monk who essentially argued for the heretical notion of the poverty of Christ. And his symbolic gesture was taking his shoes off and going about barefoot because he believed that as a follower, he was called to give away his earthly possessions. This was in contrast to the power that the church wielded at the time, where it was a political organization that governments relied upon to gain legitimacy, and the office of the pope was as much a political as spiritual position. This renunciation of worldly possessions was seen as heretical at the time because it represented a direct rebuke to the established ruling structures. So there's something really quietly radical about the way Trappist talks about all of this. Just keep an eye on that sort of thing. He then starts telling the story about how pretty much everyone's bad in the world at this point. What I find telling is how certain people are bad and how this parable justifies the wickedness and the types of wickedness. Almost every wicked woman, actually I think every wicked woman in this parable, is wicked for having sex. And every wicked man is also either having sex or abusing their spouses. But I want to point out that even when we reference a man having sex as being wicked, the woman is still the subject of the wickedness. A woman having sex, a woman desiring or requiring payment for sex, a woman having sex with multiple partners, that's the wickedness in women. But the punishment is to be beaten half to death, to be punished for enjoying oneself, for having physical intimacy. It's justified that this woman's husband beats the living shirt out of her. No, I personally believe that they should not have remained married if she didn't desire his company, but that she should not be punished or considered wicked for having physical intimacy with other people. Also, the thought that 
this religious organization that has made up this parable, let's be real here, has decided that the ultimate thing that can denote a woman's wickedness is having sex, but that men can cheat other people out of money, they can steal and lie, they can hurt people, severely hurt women, and that that complex nature of their wickedness can be told, but but women, the only wickedness that we hear about is sexual. It is telling. And it's also common, I have found, in our own religious stories. We view women who do not conform to our standards of prudence as wicked. Yeah, I mean, you look at stories of Adam and Eve, you have the apocryphal stories of Lilith and things like that, where a woman expressing sexual agency is viewed as somehow evil in a way that men are kind of given a pass. It gets pretty gross. It's extremely gross and just... Then we come to Periel, who is the lone virtuous person in the story. And the thing about her is she points out, how can you expect people to be kind and good when their neighbors are demons? Trappist paints a very predatory picture of society at this point, where everyone is out for themselves, everyone is trying to just exert power, and this one lone virtuous person says, well, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to hold that against them. Even as Telu is kind of dismissive of them, kind of in that Old Testament God sort of way. This is the God that decided to create a flood just because he was sick of humanity. Sort of this Old Testament idea that nobody's good enough. And her point is how can you expect people to be good when they're constantly being victimized? And you get into sort of those circular relationships where people who are victimized victimize others. Hurt people hurt people, so to speak. When she says, how can you expect people to be good with their neighbors or demons? In some cases in this story, that is literal. Demons inhabit men, inhabit their bodies. Some demons stole the skin of men and wore them like clothing. Which I think is also a little bit of foreshadowing because later on at the end of the book, what we get is a soldier coming into the Waystone, who is a skin dancer. He's basically a skin suit inhabited by a demon or something akin to a demon. It's feasible that a thousand years can change a real actual entity into a demon. Yeah, we've seen it with dragons. We see it with all sorts of things like that. But also at the beginning, we see the scrailing being described as demons. There's all sorts of things where we describe creatures we don't understand as monsters of some sort. The common Dracus. Yes, exactly. A perfect example of that. And at this point, she makes her plea for humanity. And Telu's like, well, I still don't get it. And then 
Periel's response, I think, is pretty interesting. She says, well, of course you don't get it. You've never been a human. Which, this is a thing that I think is applicable to a lot of circumstances. Of course you don't get it. You've never been. There are people who are born into privilege that have never been poor. Of course they don't get it. Of course they don't understand what it's like when your rent can't be covered by your full-time paycheck. People who earn $15 an hour or less are some of the hardest workers in our country. And they cannot live in some of our most affluent cities. And I think it takes some courage here on Periel's part because though she is this virtuous person, remember she is standing up to someone that she believes to be the creator, capital G God. The way that she's described as being virtuous is that she worshiped Telu. She prays only for others and never for herself. And she never curses Telu's name. Some of these seem very self-serving to Telu. One thing I will note, though, there's an element of what's called protest theology. And this is a form of Christian theology that is tasked with holding God accountable for human evil and also natural evil. This is a form of theology that says God should be held accountable for when bad things happen and God can be called out. God can be challenged and should be challenged. You'll see this as a common thread in a lot of theologies that are focused around human rights and social justice movements. Again, noting that her call to God is, I'm going to ask you to step outside yourself for a bit here. I want you to remember that you're all powerful, but let's actually give you a chance to walk a mile in human shoes. And I think that's a very unique form of courage. I admire that. Yes, and he does sort of. He decides to be a human for all of three months? Not very long. Most of that three months he's sequestered away because his mother, sort of. This is getting into Zeus territory where like he creates himself out of himself. It's where But... Periel hides him away for months in the time that he goes from being a newborn to being a 17-year-old adult-ish. And he doesn't speak for three months. He doesn't interact with other people for three months. There is no human experience in this person. And yet he is justifying himself. Of course I'm going to be a human, but he doesn't really have human experience. His first interaction with humans outside of Periel is him going into full-on judgy mode, and Periel again rebukes him. How can you expect them to be good when their neighbors are demons? How can you expect them to care for others when no one cares for them? I think that that's a thing that a lot of people feel. How can you expect me to care for people who don't care for me? Now, and this is interesting here. What she's really getting at is how can you expect people to be good when no one is good to them? Not that they will be good to those who are good to them, but the act of caring for another person 
the act of thinking about another person as a complex human being is a lot more manageable if someone is looking out for you. That is exactly what I'm saying. A lot of us currently look at the world through these lenses of, I have to protect myself. No one else is going to care for me. No one else is going to do for me what I need to have done. So why should I do that for other people? We see it in quote in that little tiny chapter afterwards. I can't give of myself because I won't get anything back or I will just get pain back. And to become vulnerable, to see other people as complex human beings, is sometimes hard, especially when the people around you are telling you, see that person over there, they're different. You should be afraid of them. It's a very challenging place to be in. And I think Periel's reaction tells us a bit about Trappist's ideals. These describe his worldview. His thought is, how can I expect these kids on the street to have anything approaching virtue if no one shows them any kindness, if they don't know what kindness looks like, if they don't know that they're loved and that they're valued? And so whatever else their faults, he will make sure that he's providing them that emotional security and sometimes physical security when he can. I think that's a very telling aspect of his life. His call is not to worry about judging the sins of others. It's to do the compassionate thing, to pray for the well-being of others, regardless of whether they're good or bad, to do the work. And again, I note here Periel's courage. She calls out her God, first in a dream, and then to someone that she knows is far more powerful than her at this point. This is her God-made flesh, and she is still reminding him of that early challenge. It's not enough for you to just go around judging people and say who can and who can't get help, who's worthy, who's not. You have to understand the lives that they lead. Now, do you think he ever does? Not really, no. I don't think he ever really gets to a truly human existence. The rest of the story concerns him drawing a line in the sand and then asking people to come follow his path. This is our first real explanation of what the path is. The first person to cross over is the smith Rengen, who is actually challenging Telu to prove that he is who he says he is and is actually expressing courage. This group of people challenges Telu, but the road is the same. All roads lead to death, so why does it matter if we're good? Telu responds, if you stay on your side, there's going to be punishment all the way through, and then you'll die. If you take my side, there will be a brief punishment, and then it'll be light the rest of the way. Which I think is probably an oversimplification of things, given that his punishment involves beating someone with a hammer. And it's reminiscent of when Quoth gets lashed at the university. He gets whipped. Which would not have been terribly uncommon in a medieval society. Corporal punishment was the norm rather than the exception. And it looks anachronistic to our eyes. It looks weird and harsh. And evil. And evil, yeah. 
But in those days, that would have been the norm. But Telu hurts people. He beats them with a hammer. How is this a virtuous god? One thing that occurred to me was one of the ways that Trappist is able to come across as so non-judgmental is that he believes that there is a final judge who will handle all of that and that it is not his place to sort out who is good, who is evil, who's sinned, who is not. He is concerned only with doing what he thinks is right, knowing that whatever else happens, that'll be handled by his deity. And I can see that there's sense in that. And at the same time, there's a kind of binary worldview built into it. To be clear, I think that there are certain things that people do that only hurt themselves. And I think that is oftentimes punishment enough. And I think that's something that he says happens on the, quote, other side of the path. He basically just says that you'll take your lumps if you come over here all at once. You'll go through your withdrawal. You'll do the hard work of making amends. But then you will stop punishing yourself. And that's your reward. To the person that he gave the first opportunity to cross, he says, you were the first to cross. It was a brave thing. I am proud of you. Ringan, who became Warith, the forger of the path, which sounds like all capital letters, the forger of the path. And I wonder if he's a religious figure, maybe the founder of the church. It kind of reminds me of the way... Simon Peter goes from being Simon to becoming Peter, the rock. Throughout Christian mythology, you see characters change their names to represent the new lives that they lead. I think there is a parallel there. So the first person that gets the opportunity gets a special reward almost. He is punished less. But I think that there is... Something to be said for being the first person to reach out to help. It is easier once you see other people do it. The difference between going through untouched powder and then seeing a path through. The person who took it first, they're the ones who actually help you know it can be done. That there's a way forward. And it's easier once you can see that way forward. In the end, seven people stayed on the other side of the line. One of them was a demon. And this, I think, is where we start to see parallels to the Chandrian, which means literally the seven. In the first episode, we talked about how when people are debating the nature of the Chandrian, they say they're not the people who refused Telu's call. But you can kind of see how they rhyme a little bit here, how there's an element of this story that maybe carries through to their story Like, the stories don't exist independent of one another. I think there's at least some parallels there, particularly in Canis, whose face is always in shadows, which mirrors the descriptions of Haliax, and as we'll see going forward, Lanray. I think that shadowed face, that's a powerful parallel. It seems to be sort of the Talon interpretation of this figure. There are too many parallels to be ignored. Uh, the number and then Incanus himself. And you look at how we have similar parallel stories on Earth. 
between, say, the flood of Noah and the flood of Gilgamesh. And the actual historical records that there was definitely actual flooding in Mesopotamia. It's a historical record viewed through different lenses. So I can see how for someone especially like Trappist, he's going to have these stories that he views through this particular lens. It colors his worldview of them. Also, the Chandrian are mentioned in the same story as Taberlin the Great. They seem to be woven through a lot of stories and parables, and a lot of parables get told to children, but it is assumed that adults know all of this and don't need to be reminded. And in the same spot, Kvothe is learning about these things as he is a child himself. And as he gets older, a few years later, these stories have flittered out of his mind and he can't remember where these stories come from or where these little half-remembered things are or what the details are. And he goes through that fruitless search of trying to find more information about the Chandrian and dismissing children's tales. It's like going to school to be a historian and deciding, I'm going to study Dracula. People are going to look at you like you're probably a little extra and a little silly. Even though, yeah, there is Vlad Sepish of Wallachia, who's a real person, people conflate the story of the actual historical Vlad Dracula with Bram Stoker's, and particularly Bela Lugosi's portrayal of Bram Stoker's Dracula. But back to Telu and Encanis. At this point, Encanis destroys six cities as Telu chases him. We'll also see echoes of this in the story of Lanray that Scarpy is going to be telling here in our next episode. So keep an eye on that. So for six days, Encanis fled and six great cities were destroyed. The seventh city was saved. This is why seven is a lucky number, but seven is also connected to the Chandrian, which I would say is very much not a lucky thing. No. So they come to Ator, the seventh city. And it is important to note that Ator still exists in the time of Quoth. Yes, Ator is the Rome of sorts. It's a cultural center, represents a seat of government and authority and law. So here, Telu finally catches up to Encanis and then knocks him out with a hammer and then straps him to a great big iron wheel. He tortures... Incanus. Telu's version of justice is heavy on the retributive side. It's all about eye for an eye, the code of Hammurabi, so to speak. If someone causes an offense, you have to punish them and make sure that they suffer pain in response. Now, whether this is proportional to the actual pain that they caused is up for debate. For many of the people that he's been bludgeoning with a hammer, Probably it's not. One might make an argument that it is proportional what he is doing with Incanus, given the level of destruction that Incanus has wrought. That said, it's sort of the casting the devil into hell moment. Okay, I'm going to build a pit here, and I'm going to set it all on fire, and I'm going to throw you into it. And then when you break your chains, I'm going to hold you down 
and make you burn. And I'm going to allow myself to die to do this, which is a parallel to Christian stories of while Jesus is dead, after he's been crucified, he spends those three days wrestling with the devil in hell before he's resurrected. Although there's not really a resurrection story in this. The structure of this story is different than any of the other stories that we get. There's phrases like, he who was not Menda, and nevertheless, Periel was wise. It sounds a lot like the Synoptic Gospels. These were the Gospels that were written by people who were supposed to have physically witnessed the events that transpired. There's a lot of these structures that we don't see when other people are talking about stories, but they are definitely reminiscent of religious stories or of fables. Yeah, I'd say that the parables here are to stories what squares are to rectangles. They are stories, but they're a particular kind of story that is unique. There's an element of didacticism to it to say, this is good, this is bad, you should do this, don't do that. We're given examples of what Trappist considers to be wicked, as we've discussed, quote, sexual immorality and the abuses of the priesthood, something that he kind of sneaks in there, even though he knows that all of this occurred before the existence of the priesthood. These stories, these parables, are meant as morality tales. They are meant to encourage others to go down the same path, to be persuasive. This is the good and virtuous. You want to be good and virtuous, so do what this tells you to do. There's an element of goofus and gallant. Goofus leads fools astray. Gallant beats them with hammers. <laughs> that doesn't sound pleasant. Anyway, one detail that I would like to point out before we skip over it by accident. As Incanus is chained on the wheel and Telu is possibly giving him the road to redemption, Incanus lies and he starts talking about how, of course, I'm going to change my ways and cross to your side of the path, oh God. Because <laughs> the wheel rings out. And his scream shook the earth and shattered the stones for half a mile in each direction. Now, if you'll remember, I believe it was in episode two that we talked about it. But there is a patron of the Waystone Inn that talks to Quoth, and he says... I saw the place in Emory where you killed him, by the fountain. The cobblestones are all shattered. Same language. What we're starting to see is Quoth, as good as he may be, also has a little bit of sympathy for the devil. For instance, in the last episode, we discussed his encounter with a man dressed as Incanus, who is the one who actually shows him kindness. And in this one, we're seeing a parallel between Quoth and Incanus. Do we know that Quoth shattered the stones in Imre? We don't know that that was Quoth, but... It may have been whoever it was that he killed near the fountain. It may have been the combination of the two powers together. 
the assumption is that Ambrose is the person that he killed. Signs point to that. And Ambrose and Kvothe being two sides of a similar coin, where Telu and Incanus are also two sides of a similar coin. And then Silatos and Lanray. There's also something here, a parallel between Silatos and Telu, because they're both gifted with exceptional perception, uh, the ability to see things as they are and to see people as they are. In the next episode, we'll discuss how Lanray's face is all in shadow, much like in Canis's. It's a powerful curse. The story spells out that Incanus grows silent, but then he comes back and he has a sudden wild laughter, like breaking glass. I think that might be a description of other laughter that we hear throughout the stories. I'm not sure. Well, we'll stick a pin in that, and if we notice it again, we'll try and come back to it. Telu jumping into the pit and burning himself and sacrificing himself to himself. It doesn't seem like Telu is sacrificing himself for his followers. He is sacrificing himself so that he can kill Incanus. He doesn't seem to have a virtue. This is retribution and judgment. And at the end, we have this nice little capper which we see in other stories, not necessarily within the book, but within stories that we tell, especially to children. And that is why the Talon priests wear ashen gray robes. <laughs> this horrific story <laughs> caps off with, and that's why this happens. It's here where Quoth makes the connection that Travis was likely a priest. And it's kind of bittersweet that he never hears another story from Trappist. Trappist, for whatever his problematic beliefs, is still a person of pure generosity. And I think it's a testament to the fact that people can hold problematic beliefs, but still behave in a way that is kind and good. Moving on to the next tiny chapter, Shadows Themselves in which we see a little bit of the ugliness within Kvothe's soul. Here, Kvothe is up in his secret place, his hideaway between the three roofs, and he witnesses an eight-year-old boy being chased down by some older kids and being beaten and assaulted. Potentially raped. Yeah. He mentions that at one point he was attacked like this as well. As we will see in Wise Man's Fear, he describes surviving a sexual assault himself, which he alludes to here in the vaguest of terms. The boy gave a soft cry that ended in a choked sob. I don't know that everyone would pick up on that, and I don't know if I'm reading something into it. So there's a game called Gone Home. Spoilers if you haven't played it, you really should play it. It's amazing. And I may have spoken about it before. All of the characters that we meet, except for the one that you play as, are discovered through found objects. And so one of the characters, the main character's father, 
has these journal entries that you find that describe an encounter with his uncle. Now, when I played the game, I read it differently than Phoenix did. I didn't have any prior experience with domestic abuse or you know, anything like that, and so I, I read it in a more innocuous light. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you mostly thought of it as a little bit creepy, but mostly innocuous. Yeah. Your main character's father is named Terrence. Almost everything that you find relating to Terrence's uncle Oscar is hiding in places that Terrence doesn't want his children to find. The house that you are exploring used to be Oscar's, and Terrence spent a lot of time there as a child, until he was about 12, which you can see because there are height marks for Terrence growing up. They abruptly stop at age 12. And there are implications that Terrence was molested by his uncle. That overwhelming vibe of Uh, something happened here that is traumatizing and awful. I think the people that I know that picked up on that are all people who have been abused in some way. And people who don't pick up on that have generally been people who lived happy childhoods. It's a dark subject matter there. It's something that both alludes to here is also where I think we see the bystander effect again somebody else will help him except Quoth knows that nobody else will help this boy right Quoth almost helps he almost helps and then his survival instinct kicks in He knows that he's only got one stone to throw, and as soon as he throws it, the attackers will know where he is, and they'll come get him too. And so he skulks away and leaves this boy effectively to die. He twists his blanket in his hands, and he clenches his teeth, and he tries to shut out the noises. We know for someone like Kvothe with a memory like his, that's something that sticks with him for the rest of his life, as he discusses in the next chapter, how he doesn't like to go back to remembering these things because his memory is so clear and vivid of all of these things. It's a double-edged sword that can cut just as easily as it can bring back happy things. He says... Regret stays with you forever. Physical hurts can go away, but emotional traumas stick with you. Sometimes those things are connected, but it is important to remember that emotional abuse is still abuse. Doesn't leave easily detectable signs, but those mental scars last. They don't mend easily. Bast asks, why did you stay there when it was so awful? This is a thing that we ask victims of abuse. Why do you stay if it's so awful? 
from my own experience, you stay because it's something you know and it's familiar. Because as surety as it is, you don't know how surety it's going to be without that familiar thing that you know you can live with. My own story, I survived daily panic attacks. I didn't realize that I had an anxiety disorder somehow and that my ex was exacerbating it. But I thought that it was normal to have screaming matches every day. It's not. In fact, now, many, many years later, I look at my 19-year-old self and go, what the fork were you thinking? I spent almost 10 years with him. And there wasn't a moment where I decided that I couldn't. Not really. There was a moment when I didn't. And it scared the living shirt out of me. Why do people stay? Because I knew I could survive in that situation. Because I had been surviving in that situation. It was escalating. I knew that I couldn't keep doing it. At that point, I decided to stay with friends. And once I make a decision, it goes pretty quickly. A few weeks later, I left the state. And the same thing will happen in Foth's life. The second that he makes the connection that he can make a change, he does. I don't know that I'm going to keep this entire story in this podcast. But you can't look at an abuse victim and ask them, why are you staying and judge them? You're not living through it. And much like Telu, you cannot understand if you have not been there. To bring us back to our lens here, I think this actually brings up a useful distinction between parables and stories. Stories that are just parables have clean and simple morals and outcomes. Whereas the story that you shared from your life, it was messy. It was difficult and it was uniquely yours. It's not something that I think is easily repeatable for anybody. And it's not about being repeatable. It's about being able to share that and to empathize. I noticed that Bast's Why Didn't You? It's the sort of thing that I know I can oftentimes find myself falling into. It's well-meaning. Right. But again, when you're not in that situation, you don't know. Things that seem simple from the outside are oftentimes far from it when being dealt with in practice. Bass suggests that Quoth find Aventhe. And even now, Quoth can give the same roadblocks that he gave when he was a 12-year-old. He'd have starved to death. He'd have frozen to death. And those are all probably true. But he also acknowledges that anywhere would have been better than Tarbian. We are all creatures of habit, and it is far too easy to stay in familiar ruts that we dig for ourselves. Sometimes victims of abuse think that they deserve that. And it seems like Quoth thought that when he was a young boy. Yeah, we get some evidence of survivor's guilt here. 
rationally, we know that there's nothing he could have done had he been there. But when you're a kid, especially, you hold on to that and it affects you. He is also numb. He talks about how he needed to be reminded of things that he had forgotten. He needed a reason to leave. And then years later, he met Scarpy. And that's where we leave off. Scarpy, if you will remember, is the person that sent Chronicler to go find Quoth. I wonder if he knows that it's the same little boy. Scarpy often seems to know more than he lets on. So now we're at the time in our show when we come to talk about the Aristotelian Phrenemos of the week, where we find a model of practical wisdom in the text. That is my turn this week. And we didn't have really a whole lot that we haven't seen before in the main story itself. However, within the story that Trappist is telling, we have one in the form of Peril. I was really struck by the fact that she was more concerned with doing the right thing than trying to judge her neighbors. She had compassion for them, even when maybe they weren't the sorts who were good people themselves. It reminds me of a prayer that a friend of mine once had, and that was, Dear Lord, please make the bad people good and the good people nice. And that's kind of where she is, I think. She doesn't want vengeance on people who harm her. She wants them to be better. She wants them to not be causing harm. She doesn't necessarily want them to be punished. She wants them to be good. I thought that was a really powerful statement of virtue on her part, where she clearly is wanting other people to be better than they are. And she's also recognizing that their circumstances may be preventing them from being better. Her statement, how can you expect people to be good when their neighbors are demons? When they have these things, these forces in their life that are putting them into situations of desperation, when they are surrounded by people who are perpetually undermining their sense of trust, because if they don't come out on top, other people will harm them. When you have that sort of dog-eat-dog -dog mentality beaten into you, in some cases literally, it's small wonder that people don't behave virtuously. It's a great model that Quoth is terrible at following. Yes. In the next episode, in fact, we will see not only does he have a hard time helping people who are in his eyes, deserving of help, where he hates himself for being the awful person that just lets things happen. He's also, he's vengeful. He has a really mean streak in him. And it's kind of gross. It really is. And I think that it's a sense of pettiness and yeah, we'll, we'll discuss it next episode. But it's a model that, as usual, Quoth fails to follow. So now it is time for us to discuss our interesting fact of the week. Phoenix, it is your turn. If you fail to interest me in three turns, well, you know what that means. Raspberries for you. Uh -uh. We'll see. I'll be the judge of that. Somehow this system doesn't seem completely fair. 
I don't know why we set it up this way. Nevertheless, I don't believe I will fail to interest you. All right, interest me. Deciding between a couple of them. But know that I will eventually get to the next one. Doesn't have to be today. I know. Okay. Did you know that it is impossible to perfectly tune a piano? Stands to reason. Why? Well, because our notions of what constitutes perfect are arbitrary. No, they're not. They are. They aren't. And meanwhile, it's an analog system, so there's always more that you can tune it. You... No, there's not. Hmm. So tell me why, then. Tuning has to do with physics and frequencies. There is a point at which a string can be perfectly tuned to a note that you are trying to achieve, to a frequency you are trying to achieve. It's a sine wave. Harmonics are at play here. But you cannot perfectly tune a piano against itself. In fact, you can't actually perfectly tune a piano. Okay. And why is that? I will preface this with the reason involves a lot of math. And I really don't want to get into all the math on this podcast. But I have shared a video from Minute Physics in the show notes so that we can actually have people who want to know all of the mathy bits know the mathy bits. So generally speaking, we use harmonics to tune stringed instruments. So with a guitar, you can tune it against itself really easily by putting your finger on the fifth fret of a string and then playing that string and the open string below it. And then you can use the tuning pegs so that they're playing the same note. If you try to tune a piano against itself, if you try it in whole steps, by the time that you reach the next octave, so the next set of eight, you'll be off by a little bit. If you try to use major thirds, fourths, it will be microscopically off throughout the whole thing. And then you'll notice it really, really badly by the time that you get to the octave. And this obviously compounds through the 88 keys. So if you try using half steps, you'll actually wind up being off by almost 10% by the time that you get to the end of the octave. So everything will start sounding wrong and be out of tune, starting at the second note. So instead, most pianos use equal tempered tuning, which uses irrational numbers, which is, I believe, the 12th root of two instead of harmonics, which harmonics are an easy sine wave. The 12th root of two is no. Because it uses those numbers instead of harmonics, it leaves most of the notes either slightly sharp or slightly flat. But because almost all pianos are tuned this way, every piano that you've probably heard has notes that are slightly flat or slightly sharp in all the exact same way. Hmm. You win this round. Yes! I also may have chosen to use this as my interesting fact because at the end of the video, they mentioned the name of the wind. <laughs> and I find it interesting. Well, fun. That is legitimately interesting. Thank you. And again, for anyone who actually wants to know the mathy bits, the Minute Physics video is really, really good. Cool. 
And now we are at the time where we're going to share seven words. It's my turn to find seven words from the book. Phoenix has seven words from life. So mine are, this is a story from long ago. There weren't very many seven word phrases during this section. Which is unlike the next section, which is my section, and it has a plethora. And I think part of that may also be due to the differences between Trappist and Scarpy. And their storytelling styles. Precisely. I think there's something vaguely magical about Scarpy. Which we'll get to next episode. But in the meantime, I think that part of what makes my sentence work here is it's a good place setter. It does just enough to help explain the things that may seem weird to the listeners. Sort of like how in Star Wars it always begins a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I was going to say that. This explains everything that may not track with what you're used to. And these little place settings can sometimes carry a lot of narrative weight. That's true. In this case, it takes you out of the story within the story that you are currently reading now. Because we have a framing device and then we have Kvothe's story. And within Kvothe's story, we have Trappist's story. Yes, we're in storyception mode here. I like how it has a different cadence, has a different narrative tone than what Kvothe's story is. So he does a good job of having the character of Trappist within his own story, telling that story to Chronicler and Bast. I think that that's a really good seven words. Good job. Thanks. What are yours? Mine are ones that I was going to use on episode nine, and then Sokka was really, really super cute, and I had to change my words. So I'm going back to them. What books do you recommend right now? Ooh, those are good. That's a great way to start a conversation. And instantly you're learning about the other person a lot, too. And it also says a lot about you. Will you answer my question? So my current recommendations are going to be The Baron, the Nightingale, The Girl in the Tower, and The Winter of the Witch from Catherine Arden. These are stories that are based on Russian folklore. There's all sorts of political traditions. This takes place during the Muscovite period when the Muscovite princes were vassals of the Golden Horde. And the political tensions that resulted from that arrangement, as well as the dawning of Christianity as a major political force, combined with the old pagan ways that the Rus followed back in those days as well. So there's a lot of very interesting cultural mixes there, and it's about an area in our world that I think a lot of times it's very easy to have negative beliefs about, especially in most American and Western European discourse. But it's an interesting blend. I love those books. I'm really glad that you wanted to read them at my recommendation. It was very fascinating. I studied a bit of Russian history in college, so it was like catnip for me. And what about you? What do you recommend? Right now I'm in the middle of listening to The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. I like to listen to a lot of books 
It's a little harder now that I'm editing a podcast nearly all my days, but I do like to listen to a lot of books. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid and my dad used to read to me. It's kind of a special thing as long as the narrator is good. So I do recommend that book, even though I haven't finished it. For books that I recommend that I have read all the way through, Parable of the Sower has a lot of things that are applicable to our current world and specifically to what is going on in the, in the political climate of the United States. It is sometimes eerie how well science fiction and speculative fiction writers have kind of predicted what is to happen. Maybe not verbatim, but in themes and in broad strokes. Also, Octavia Butler, I really love her writing. I need to listen to and or read more of her. That's a good recommendation. For any of our listeners, there are a lot of ways to contact us, and we would love to know what books you recommend right now. We're always open to new things. Our backlog is ever-growing, and we look forward to it continuing. Easy ways to get a hold of us? Probably Twitter, which is at WaystonePod. You can also leave comments on Podbean on the entry for this episode. We look forward to hearing from you. And with that, we come to the end of our episode. Will, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me, too. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Please join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 26 through 27 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of hubris. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And also many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me. Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. You know, every once in a while, you just need a Twitter account that's all about ducks. Do you? <laughs> yes, you do. Look at it. <laughs> you look horrified. <laughs>